What's on you? Hi. Do you want to come up? You can come up. This is Tonya, everyone. She is, from her accent, you will know she sounds American. Yep. But you've lived in South Africa for 12 years in Cape Town with your husband and two children, um, working or serving on a YWAM base there. And Tonya's here to teach to the DTS this week, but um, she knows Chris very well. And actually, Michael's around somewhere. There, hat. I uh, heard Tonya teach too on DTS and uh, when she was coming out here I just knew she'd have something really wonderful to say to us as a church community as well so I invited her here um, on Sunday to uh, speak to us. So welcome, um, we are ready to hear. That was beautiful by the way, I love that. Wow. Um, thanks you guys for having me, it's my first time to Australia. I have been freaking out about the birds, Chris can tell you. <laughs> you guys have really cool birds. Like, <laughs> we have baboons, but you have cockatoos, right? Yeah, oh man. And they're just flying around. Do you guys take that for granted? I mean, uh, really? Do they have personalities? <laughs> I'm a little bit jet lagged, so, you know. If you disagree with anything I say, you can blame it on the time zone, okay? Um, that'll be good. So I wrote down notes because I knew I'd be a bit tired today. Um, but yeah, my table in South Africa is brown, and it's been written on by children. Um, and my chairs are gray, just so you know. And it seats about eight people, but I live in Africa, so that means more like 20. And <laughs> there's always meat, and if there's not meat, it's not a meal, and, you know, vegetables are frowned upon, and there's never any leftovers because I am from South Africa. So that's my table. And my daughter, who sits there, is 18, and she just graduated, and she also has pink hair. So well done. Yeah. Um, and uh, my son is 11, and he is ridiculously funny. So, and I've been married 25 years. A little bit about me. So I feel like less of a stranger to you guys. Um, but yeah, I'm a missionary. Woohoo! It's a popular word these days. Um, <laughs> so I thought I would tell you guys a missionary story of uh, before I'd moved to South Africa, part of coming, going to Africa, taking teams over there is how we came to want to live there. And we decided we we're going to take this little outreach team over to Mozambique. And uh, as a good charismatic outreach team before we left. We would pray and hear the voice of God on all sorts of things. And uh, so as we got to Mozambique, we were serving at an orphanage, and our team had gotten the word that we were going to go to Inambane, Mozambique, at a certain point. It was totally not on our schedule, but we were like, okay, we'll keep a lookout for Inambane. And I met this pastor. His name is Pastor CD, for real. Um, pastor CD, and Pastor CD was from Inambane. And we got to chatting for a while, and he said, I can host your whole team. Come out to Inambane, which is a city in Mozambique. And we're like, cool. That'll be awesome. And uh, so he said, I'll get you a bus, which meant that it was a, a small van. And uh, it said, see, it's about eight people, and there were about 14 in our team. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, so how long does it take to get there? And he's, oh, about four hours. And I looked at my husband, and I'm like, is that an African four? And he's like, yeah, so six. I'm like, okay, cool, six. And uh, 
So we all pack our entire team sitting into this tiny little van like this, and there was like a couple of the pastor's friends in there as well. We didn't know why. But um, we're just driving, and we're going on and on, and we're realizing, okay, we're going to be there for like a week, so we can't expect the village to feed us, right? We need to stop at a store, and we need to stock up for our team. So I start asking the pastors questions. I'm like, okay, so do you guys live in huts, or do you live in concrete houses? Concrete? Like, okay, do you, do you live in stick houses, or do you live in strong houses? Yes, yes, strong houses. I'm like, okay concrete. I'm like, do you have electricity? Electricity? And uh, I'm like, okay, do you have uh, refrigerators? For refrigerators? Uh, do you, fridges, fridges. Yes, yes, lots of fridges. I'm like, okay, we got electricity and we got concrete houses. So we like bought all of our groceries knowing what to expect. Then we keep driving and somewhere, you know, hour four passes, hour six passes, and then hour eight passes. And <laughs> we're driving out well past the city of Inambane, in the middle of nowhere. And there's just trees and this, like, you know, just bush, African bush in front of us. And the sun's starting to go down, and the van starts slowing down. And I'm thinking to myself, dear God, do not let us turn off the road here. Um, and what we do, we turn off the road right there and just start off-roading through the, the bush, through the red dirt, you know, bouncing along as the sun is coming down, and then I'm praying my next very spiritual missionary prayer. Dear God, do not let us stop here. And we stopped. Um, <laughs> and it is pitch black. You can see nothing around us. And we're peering out the window, and all you could see were teeth. People smiling from outside. Their skin was the same color as the night, so that's all you could see. We were just surrounded by these, you know, Sheshar cat smiles. And... So we take all of our rolling luggage, because we're deeply unprepared to be in the bush at that moment. We start getting it off the bus, and these women come up, these African mamas come up, and they just pull, host, haul our luggage up onto their heads, balance it on their heads, and we all start following them in the dark, you know, just down these paths. And they can see exactly what they're going, and I'm thinking to myself, what did we just get ourselves into? And like my Canadian student who was raised by a nanny is starting to freak out. And, um, <laughs> and we show up in the middle of nowhere, and there's one big hut about half the size of this, and the pastor's like, we're here. I'm like, okay, we're here. And my team is like, okay, what does that mean? And we, he gives us, pushes us all into that hut, and we start spreading out sleeping bags and everything. And there's about 10 or 15 people just kind of standing, crowded together in the hut, just watching us put everything out, like our sleeping bags, you know, making commentary about everything that we're doing, and uh, kind of talking to themselves and laughing. And I'm like, Kevin, are they going to be, this is my husband, Kevin, are they going to be sleeping in here with us? Kevin's like, surely not. Let me go find out. And also he goes and talks to the pastor and he comes back. Yeah, they'll be in here with us. They trekked in for the conference we're putting on. Conference? <laughs> so thus began our week in the bush. Yeah. And um, when I asked later about refrigerators, you know, where were the refrigerators? I found out the pastor barely spoke any English, yet he translated us all week. I don't know what that was about. And refrigerators, uh, fridges actually means frogs in his language. And I can assure you there were lots of frogs. So... <laughs> So we spent a week there, trekking from village to village. It was actually an incredible time, quite painful to get there, quite painful to adjust, 
but amazing, you know, once we had all figured out how to shower with coconut shells. Um, uh, they wanted to show us personally and help us out, but we were like, it's, it's okay, we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> so what I was praying about um, coming here today and talking, um, I had an idea on what I wanted to talk about, but then I really felt like God put it on my heart to talk about spiritual crisis and spiritual transitions. And sometimes our spiritual journey, I'm segueing now, like the segue you did was amazing. Um, <laughs> sometimes our spiritual journeys can be as confusing as that trip with my team getting to Inambane. We don't really have a map. We don't really have a, a, a road, sign marks along the way to help us figure out where we're going. We just suddenly realize we're not where we want to be or we think there might, should be more, there should be something different than this. Um, and so, because I'm a good uh, speaker, and I want you to actually pay attention to me, um, and to like take me seriously, I brought a big, big fat Bible, okay? And so, I'm gonna read a scripture, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, all right? You guys all still with me? Yeah? All right, so it's Matthew, if you have a big fat Bible, or a small one, or a phone, and you feel like turning to it. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 16, and a few after that. And this is the story of the temptation of Christ, right? So we're just going to read a few verses, and then we're going to come back to it, right? And I'll tell you a little bit of my, more of my story. All right. Give everybody a minute here. If I'm quiet too long, I might fall asleep because of the jet lag. So it's an imaginative thing. I'm like, nope, not closing my eyes. Nope, nope. <laughs> All right. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, Hey, listen, this is God speaking. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. And so most of us in here probably know that story, that there were three different temptations while he was out in the desert, turned this stone into bread, I will give you all of the treasures and stuff of the world if you worship me. But the one I want to look at today is in verse 5. And it said, Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, so tuck that away for a moment, those scriptures, and we'll get back to them. Um, but first I'll tell you just a little bit about my story. So I'm one of those Christians who did everything right. You can just trust me on that, okay? Um, <laughs> uh, I became a Christian at 15. I went to Bible college. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I got married at 20 like a good Bible college student is supposed to do. Went into church ministry for a while, and then I became a missionary. And somewhere around my early 30s, 
before that, we moved to South Africa, and I started a counter-human trafficking ministry that was surprisingly very successful. Um, and we ran a campaign across South Africa. It's much to my shock how successful it was, to be quite honest. It had to be God. Um, but somewhere around in 2010, we managed to impact an entire nation regarding the laws against human trafficking for that nation and the awareness and prevention. And that is the thing that I've always wanted to do. It's what I've always prayed about doing. That's what people, the words people, people had spoken over me about justice. Um, and here I was, finally there, <laughs> finally doing what I always dreamed of and actually quite successful about it. And yet, there was still something inside of me that was struggling with anxiety, depression, and saying to myself, God, is this all that there is? Is this really all that there is to you? Because there just has to be more than this. And thus, a moment like that, Bang, welcome spiritual crisis. <laughs> welcome wilderness experience. Um, sometimes those things are thrown on you by tragedy, and sometimes you walk into them quite naturally, like I did. Um, so all my fundamentalist friends, because I was a fundamentalist in my upbringing, they wanted to try to find the hidden sin in my life or correct my theology, right? That was their goal. And all my charismatic friends just wanted to do deliverance ministry over me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but none of it worked. <laughs> but the one crisis is a good and necessary part of the journey. That's what no one told me. Um, so I thought the spiritual journey it led to perfection or sinlessness or destiny. And you do hit a lot of destiny along the way, which is quite fun. Um, but what I didn't understand, it was a process of becoming who you're truly intended to be. It's a way, that the goal of the spiritual journey is to enter into more deep communion with God and with others. Yeah? Um, it was such a different thing than I thought it was. And so being a good Enneagram 5, who here is into the Enneagram? Anybody in here? Yeah, 5. So what did I do? I did my master's thesis on spiritual crisis, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I couldn't help it. I'm driven to do it that way. And I learned some things. I learned that most we have as humans six different phases of our faith that we can walk through. Most of us won't walk through all of them. But I'll talk about a couple of them. So one phase, when you enter into somewhere around 18 years of age, is called the loyalist. This is a very two-dimensional faith. It's very black and white, yes and no, right and wrong. And it's very tribal in that we are like this. So my daughter, when she was little, um, she was at, talking about our cousins back in America. And she's like, yeah, but they're not Christians. I'm like, yeah, they're, they're Christians. She goes, no, they're not Christians. They don't travel like us. True missionary kid, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> You want to know who's in and who's out, and you want people to be Christians, but Christians like you. Yeah. So that's stage three faith. These stage three is make wonderful members of organizations and churches, man, because they're certain and they're sure and they are out there serving God. And you can live a very fulfilled Christian life in the loyalist phase. Always. You can. And all those people are great. However, some of us, <laughs> 
due to leaving home, being exposed to new things, due to tragedy, due to suffering. We start, once we hit 18, or much later in life, and it can look like midlife crisis when that happens, <laughs> enter into a phase called the critic. And you know these people because they stop volunteering at church and they start sitting on the back row. Um, <laughs> And suddenly every sermon is setting someone off and you're setting you off and you're just like, this stuff didn't bother me before, but now I have questions about everything. And if you're in the loyalist phase and faith is two-dimensional, if you're in the critic phase, you're questioning the existence of dimensions at all. Um, <laughs> and this phase is marked by the question, why? Why? I just, I need to know why. And it's a very painful transition that can last sometimes up to seven years for people. Um, of trying to re-examine your faith and ask all of the most fundamental questions again. So somewhere between 18 and 35, people will hit that. The younger you are, the easier the transition. It feels painful, but the older you are, the bigger consequences if you start redefining what you believe um, in your marriage and in your families and in your jobs, like say if you're a missionary. Um, <laughs> that's complicated. Um, and then, if you move out of the critic stage, if, the big question if, 80% of most evangelicals will stay in the loyalist phase for their entire lives, okay? Give you an idea. Loyalist, critic, and then seer. And you know these people when you meet them because when you move into the seer phase, your faith starts to take on three and four dimensions. What you believe before isn't gone, it's just much more layered and deep and rich. And things become new again to somebody who's a seer. Um, I wrote stuff down so I wouldn't say it wrong. This is rare before 35 years of age, but if you've known a lot of suffering, you get there a bit faster. That you know those people because of the way they listen. And when they talk to you about scripture or God, you're like, how come I have never seen it like that before? or heard it like that before. And it's quite a beautiful thing. They've gone through the pain, they've taken the time and the experience, failure has taught them, and they've grown new eyes to see and new ears to hear, and it's obvious in their lives. So when the, someone's in the seer phase, they're more captured by the image of God in themselves and the image of God in others, and the oneness of that drives them. They're more concerned with, not so much concerned with what you believe as for you to be able to see who you already are in Jesus. Does that make sense? It's a different motivation. Um, sorry, I went in that longer than I thought I was. How are we doing on time? What time should I finish? All right, no problem. Um, but one thing I want you to understand from the wilderness story Every single phase of your spiritual development might be marked by spiritual crisis somewhere in there. And why that's actually good news is because it doesn't mean that you're backsliding if you're questioning, yeah, if you have doubt. In fact, the people in the loyalist phase probably think that you're backsliding. <laughs> and you may actually feel like you are um, because what you thought was so certain before is no longer certain. But it's actually a sign that the box that you had put God in is too small and you're ready 
to experience him in new dimensions. Isn't that amazing? I thought it was weakness. It is quite the opposite. It is God calling you to more, to more, to more. So don't give up. The majority of people who leave the faith do so in the critic phase because they can't get through it. And they don't know anybody who's been through it. They don't have a capable guide. So those of you who are seers, you need to guide those who are in spiritual crisis because you can do it. You can listen to the hard questions. I remember when my friend Esther, she wasn't a friend yet, I just met her, we set up, she's this young missionary, and we set up a meeting at a coffee shop, and she confessed to me with tears in her eyes that she didn't think she could uh, tell anyone the gospel anymore because she felt like she was selling something she didn't believe in. Yeah, <laughs> that's tough. How do you raise support on that? Well, <laughs> and I just kind of smiled and looked at her, and I said, but can you love the people you're with? She's like, yeah, I can love them. I'm like, why don't you do that? And the rest will sort itself out. Yeah? Um, when she told me that, I thought to myself, wow, we finally have something to work with now. That, that uncertainty. God has a way of getting in there. He really does. But how do you get through the wilderness is the question. Well, I think it's different for every single person. And some of you, suffering has thrust you into a wilderness you didn't want to be in in the first place. <laughs> some of you are just at the ages where it naturally happens that it's time to shift into a greater, more rich faith, but getting there is so difficult. Um, so I can tell you what Jesus did, what God did with Jesus. So when Jesus was headed into the wilderness, what happened right before Jesus went to the wilderness? You guys remember from the passage? He got baptized, right? And what did God say about his son? Huh? <laughs> Thank you. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he went into the wilderness. So God, the Father, felt like the nourishment and the armor that his son needed before he headed into the wilderness was to know that he was beloved, was to know his identity in Christ, his identity as a beloved son, someone who pleases him. This is what the father thought Jesus needed to get through this time. And this is the amazing thing about those wilderness times. They're not really about learning how to believe exactly the right thing. They're about coming to understand inside your bones how much you are loved by God. And when we don't even have the capacity inside of ourselves to truly let God love us. And he needs to ex grow and expand that capacity. And that's what he's doing in those wilderness times. So here I am, gosh, I don't know how old I was, 30-something, early 30s, fully in spiritual crisis, leading a large and growing ministry. My leader's looking at going, let's multiply this overseas. Let's multiply it overseas. And I'm thinking to myself, I am dying right here, and I don't want to tell anybody, and I don't want to tell them I'm doubting everything. And um, 
And the Lord spoke to me in that time, and honestly, I didn't hear him very often during those years. But he spoke to me and he said, will you lay down your life so that you can find it? Will you lay it down so that you can find it? And I said to him, hell no, my life is ministry. (laughs) It took me a long time to let go and to say, okay, I'm going to hand over my ministry to other people. um, And I'm going to step back from it for a season because God is saying, will you lay it down so that I can find it? I can find my life. And so for one year, one year, God gave me a challenge. felt like it was from God. And it was simply this. Let me love you. That's it. And then I didn't do a lot of ministry, but I did a lot of walks on the beach. And I learned how to be with God instead of just serving God. Yeah? I learned how to live as his companion rather than just living for him. And those things are good. Those things are part of who we're supposed to be. Serving God is part of how we become who we are and meant to what he's created us to be and to know him. But for one year, will you let me love you? And what I discovered, while around me it looked like I was copping out to all of my missionary friends, what I discovered is resting in our beloved identity is far more transformational than willpower. Yeah, just knowing you are beloved walks you through the hardest time when there are no answers to the questions that you have, when why cannot be answered, when you're not feeling how you should be feeling, when you're not motivated by what you used to be motivated about, the love of God still remains. So this is the message I give to most evangelicals when I go everywhere around (laughs) in India and Cambodia to missionaries and non-missionaries. It's that Jesus loves you. (laughs) That message has gotten more and more important, it seems, because it seems those of us who grew up in the church have the hardest time believing Jesus just loves me. Um, And so if you hear nothing else today, I would love for you to hear that when God created you, He envisioned a being that would captivate him for all eternity. When God created you, he envisioned someone that would captivate him, fascinate him for all eternity. So there's this little story that I like, and it's about um, this little girl and her parents. She was about maybe four years old, same age as Salem. And her parents were walking by the nursery that they had just finished for their newborn. And the little newborn baby was asleep in there. And the little girl creeps into the nursery, and she climbs up on the baby cot on the sides, and she peers over the edge, and she looks at her newborn brother. And she says to him, Baby, where did we come from? Because I'm starting to forget. And I feel like in this life, it is so easy to forget where we came from. When Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 talks about how, before the foundation of the universe, God chose us and adopted us to be a part of his family through Jesus for a great and powerful theological reason. Why did God do that? Because it pleased him. Your existence pleases God. It brings him pleasure. And it is so easy for us to forget when it is the most powerful thing that we could own in our lives 
is this pleasure of God inside of our bones, delighting over us. So I'm going to close with this. You guys good? We're all together? I'm used to Africa where everybody's like, huh, hey, yo, yeah. <laughs> Somebody could just get up and dance right now, that would be great. Um, <laughs> I'm like Carol, I like imaginative stuff, yeah, it's really good. It impacts you at a level beyond your brain, which is good when you're in Enneagram 5 because you feel like a brain on a stick. But um, So, um, you guys know little sea turtles? You know, can you picture a little sea turtle with the little flappy, flappy? One time when we were in the Philippines on outreach, um, this... Uh, these kids brought in these little baby sea turtles for my daughter. She was tiny to just like pet. And we're like, these are so cute. And we realized they were going to eat them later. It was a little sad. But, um, uh, but you know, you have seen the National Geographics where you have the sea turtles, the, the eggs are laid on the beach, and then they hatch, right? And they come up and they dig their way out of the dirt. And then what happens? They start running towards the ocean, right? As fast as they can go. And meanwhile, you know, these seagulls, right? And these crabs are just like, and they're just picking them off one at a time. Even the crabs seem huge. They just grab them and eat them. And I guess, you know, thousands of sea turtles die just on their way to that ocean, running, scurrying toward the ocean. Only a few of them actually make it. And once they get to the ocean, they're just like, and they swim as far out as they can swim. And then they come up and peek up for air. But you know, they're probably going to be okay once they make it into that ocean. So, why I'm telling that story. I think when it comes to God's presence and his love, we often feel like one of these little sea turtles swimming frantically through the water, searching for the ocean, when really we're always surrounded by it. We're always surrounded by God's love. We just forget. Yeah, we forget. So what I want to do is everybody can, actually, I'll have you stand up because it's the end of the service. And I want to do something, you know, like, you know, super serious and Christian. I want you to just pretend you're a sea turtle. Okay? So, and close your eyes. And I want you to just picture you're swimming through an ocean. You've just barely made it out. Um, maybe you have anxieties and questions or doubt, or grief that's just bombarding you constantly. And you just you feel like you're just running, 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 running. Maybe it's just keeping up with life in general. And uh, so you're swimming, swimming, swimming. Now what I want you to picture is that that ocean is God's love. And just become aware of that for a few seconds. You're in an ocean, and it's God's love. And what I want you to do is picture yourself as that little sea turtle and come up for a breath. So just take a deep breath. And I want you to gain the perspective of looking around and realizing that you're in an ocean surrounded by God's love. And one more time, we're just going to take a deep breath as an amen. And recognize that you are always in the presence of God and you are his beloved one no matter what else is going on. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Tonya. That was good, hey.